Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces. Today, today is February 8th, and today we're going to be talking about part three of our Christian responsibility in a democracy. Our leading scripture reference today will be Mark 13, verses 9 through 11. We'll have several other scriptures that we're going to look at today, and we'll put those in the comments section. And with Mark 13, 9 through 11 as our primary backdrop, let's just dig right in. Thank you, Randy. Our current event, as we concluded uh, this series on how should a Christian be involved in politics, is still the 117th Congress, of which 88% say that they are Christians of some kind. They all confess to be Christians. And 90-some are Republicans. Yeah, 90, 99%. We can sweet in one more. Yeah. Just one more. One more. And the Christian expectation is Christian in politics. How should a Christian be involved in politics? Uh, we're not against Christians in politics, but it is our conviction that this has not been thought out too well over the last, mm, what is it, since the early 60s to where we are now? The composition of Congress is mostly Christian, and culture has still gone down. People think that if we got Christians in the government at the highest levels, we'd turn the country around. That doesn't work because we're salt and light, and we work at the grassroots cultural le level, and government is not called to be salt and light. Well, if it was going to solve it, it was 1961, they started. Yes, yes. And it's 80-plus percentile yes. of Christians in, in government service. Right. So... Uh, Doesn't not, work. No, it's not working. It's not working. No. Um, so for this uh, broadcast, it's Christians should be prepared if they're going to go into politics and what that preparation is involved and what kind of people to be, and should be called. Mm. We need to keep in mind the warnings that we saw last time from Luke 4, uh, verse 5 through 7, and that's the uh, vision of the last three temptations that Satan gives Jesus takes him to a high mountain, and in a moment of time, a visionary experience, he shows them all the glory and grandeur of the kingdoms, their power, their wealth, all of that is included in the idea of glory, as the ancients so well knew. If he would just worship the devil, hmm. Satan would give it all to him. And that, that vision, being one of the last three big ones, tells us that the political arena is fraught with the power of Satan. you just got to be careful with that. And then, of course, in the Lord's Prayer, one of the uh, petitions that ends that is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And, of course, there's a lot of modern translations I'll have. Deliver us from the evil one. Hmm. There, where is temptation to be found? Well, in the world. But the political arena is the world on steroids. Hmm. And so for that reason alone, we need to be very careful about uh, going into the world of politics if we're going to be doing that as a Christian. But a Christian is first prepared prepared and then also needs to have a calling, has a sense of a calling, mm. because it's like any other vocation. You're going to be there doing something. We're all called to be witnesses. How should we be witnesses in the political realm, and what is the nature of that? Interestingly enough, uh, the church's first time it shows up as being involved with a political witness, a witness to the powers that be, is in Mark uh, chapter 13 and Luke 12, and Randy's going to read those to us now. So Mark 13, verses 9 through 11, says this, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. 
but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And then Luke 12, verses 11 and 12, similarly says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That's some just-in-time delivery, it sounds like. Just in time. And also the same uh, narrative is found in Matthew 10. Same narrative is found in Luke 21. So it's all over the gospel accounts. It's an ad hoc arrangement. It's for the time. Notice there's no preparation. So clearly, since there's no preparation, you can deduct on one hand, they weren't going to be preparing for this kind of political involvement. And because it's ad hoc, it happens at various times and it has throughout history, the promise is given, don't worry, I will give you the words to speak when you are there. That is not the typical involvement in politics, but it is the church's witness and it's, it shows up for the first time how we'd be a witness for the Lord. It's with that political involvement of being brought before the powers that be because they're persecuting us in some sense. Hmm. So there's no preparation involved. We depend upon God to give us the help we need. Now, this is, we talked about Billy Graham's quote uh, a couple podcasts ago, but, but by his own admission, he was neither prepared to be in politics, and he said he's still clear of it, and nor did he have a calling to do that, because we all know his calling was to be an evangelist. Yeah. And his wife, as we mentioned then, tried to uh, remind him of that. Once when he was at a table with President Johnson, Johnson says, well, who do you think I should get my running mate? And Billy Graham was going to give advice, and Ruth, his wife, kicked him out of the table, <laughs> reminding him. You stick with spiritual advice. Yeah. You're not here for, okay. So if you're going to go into politics, then you need to be prepared. Where are we going to look to find the patterns of truth in this? In Romans 15:4, uh, Paul says, the scriptures that were written before, which is our Old Testament, were written for our instruction and for our hope, endurance, and encouragement. So we go to the Old Testament and look at the patterns of truth. And the first thing we want to look at is, who are the people who were close to political power and what kind of people were they? And how were they in terms of preparation? And we'll see that God had prepared them, and they are special people. For instance, we can look at Joseph, who becomes second in command under, you know, with Pharaoh mm -hmm. in the uh, world of Egypt, book of Genesis. Uh, Daniel uh, gets taken off in the captivity to Babylon, and he's uh, right there uh, at the heart of power with Nebuchadnezzar and uh stays there for decades, and when he's finishing, it's Darius, the Persian, who has taken over, and he's there with him as well. And he was a man who was listened to, and they took his advice. Very interesting. Nehemiah was someone else who was... Nehemiah was a cupbearer to uh, was Artaxerxes, and he, um, a cupbearer was, well, you taste the, the wine before you give it to the king to make sure you hadn't poisoned or somebody else had. But also, it's just, it, was a, it was a word or a phrase that also indicated in that culture that he had position of power. Hmm. He was uh, in charge of finances, if you're a cupbearer, and many other items as well. So Nehemiah is a person who was close to the heart of power. Esther, mm -hmm. because she was married to a such a time as this. Xerxes, yes, yes. Um, so we see Esther. And her uncle Mordecai, when the book of Esther ends, chapter 11, we're told he's second, second in rank only only to the, to the king. He has risen to that power and was given that position because he was trustworthy. We could go on, but these people, obviously, loyalty to God is what mattered. It was 
absolutely primary. Uh, in Luke 14, Jesus talks about you got to count the cost if you're going to be a disciple. And if you're going to be a disciple in a political realm, you really need to count the cost. He says if you're going to build a tower, make sure you got the wherewithal to finish it or people will think you're a fool. So if we're going to go into the political realm, we need to count the cost. We need to be prepared. So, um, yes, Esther had great courage as well. She was told that she's got to go in and see the king. She didn't have permission because the Jews were subject to annihilation uh, by Haman. But she says, I'm going to do it. If I perish, I perish. She counted the cost. She's ready to die, you know, in that political arena if need be. And, of course, Daniel, uh, once they passed the law, you couldn't pray and face Jerusalem. He still did the same thing yeah. he did every day, got down on his knees and prayed. So you got to have the courage and you got to count the cost. Also, preparedness goes along with also being called. These are two combinations. The prophets of the Old Testament were called, uh, sure, to preach to the people. We see that time and time again. Israel needed the calling back. Some of the nations needed calling to repentance, like we see with Jonah. But... They were also at the center of political power. They were called to advise, confront, and encourage the leaders, the kings, with God's word. We all know the story how Nathan confronted David mm -hmm. and did so fearlessly and got David to repent. You are the man. You are the man. That's right. There's a, a prophet named Shemaiah. Uh, he comes up in Kings and Chronicles, and he was sent to confront Rehoboam, the first king of the newly divided kingdom, because he had led Israel into falling away from God, and he was confronted by Shemaiah, and Rehoboam repented. We have Elijah, who confronted uh, the wicked, one of the worst of kings, Ahab, uh, twice. And the second time, uh, he got him, he, he hit him so hard with the word of God that actually by that time, Ahab repented. In fact, God said, do you see my, my king Ahab, how he's got sackcloth and ashes, and he has... Uh, changed his mind on these things and repented. So all of this tells us that these prophets were called to be in the center of power. I'm sure they were also prepared people because you don't call a novice no more than in the book of Timothy. You get a novice to be a leader in the church, as right. Paul says. Right. You've got to be prepared, but you have to have a sense of calling. You have to have a sense, I belong here, despite what's going on. And the calling can vary. Here's, uh, I always love this. This is Amos's description of his call uh, from Amos 7. Randy? Amos 7, verses 10 through 16, says, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, said to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile, away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from the following flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Amen. And so I always appreciate Amos saying, I wasn't a prophet, but God called me. 
No doubt he prepared him, and he's going to do the word of God. That's that's a conviction. Mm-hmm. And the king's main man there, Amaziah the priest, he just does it face to face and says, it's going to happen, and you're going to suffer because you not obey God. Isaiah gets a calling in chapter 6 of Isaiah to be a prophet to the people and to, as we'll see, a king, the kings as well. But uh, his was visionary experience, mm-hmm. different from um, Amos's. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, Isaiah held Hezekiah, one of the really good Five kings we have in the uh, Old Testament, but Hezekiah was a sinner at times, and he was held accountable by Isaiah. One of the things about being a prophet is that you you don't have many friends. <laughs> it's a lonely job. It's a lonely job to be yeah. prophetic in that sense of holding people accountable by the word of God. You just don't have friends. Elijah at one point says, Lord, everybody's gone. I alone am left. I'm doing the work. And of course, God had to remind him, no, I got some other people in reserve. But Elijah great prophet that he was could get disturbed could get depressed over doing this work so you have to be convicted to do it you have to be prepared i've always liked harry truman one of my favorite presidents from the past um he said want to have a friend in washington get a dog (laughs) so and this is the truth of anybody who wants to be somewhat prophetic speaking the truth now we come to the new testament and we have jesus there making the good confession, as Paul refers to it in 1 Timothy 6, before Pilate. And notice this confession's testimony is political in nature. So John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38 says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And he said this, and he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Yes, um, again, what we need in the political arena now, we always need it, but these days more than ever is truth. Mm. And a lot of people say what is truth because they're not looking for truth anyway. Again, they're looking to get out of a situation, to cover themselves, seeking power, looking for wealth, or as Felix, as we shall see shortly, looking for money uh, because he's involved in politics, and that's a good way to make money. When we look at the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 9, we have this first uh, time that Luke describes his conversion. And the Lord speaks to this faithful Jewish Christian, Ananias, and says, I want you to go to Paul and uh, bless him, and he's blinded, and heal him, and Ananias has his objections, and Jesus says, listen, he's going to bear testimony to me before Gentiles, kings, and Israel. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting there is, we all know he was apostle of Gentiles, and he also spent time converting Jews, but right between those two, mm-hmm. kings. In yeah. other words, as a prophet, he will bear witness to kings, just like Old Testament prophets, just like anybody who's going to be involved in eventually in the political realm, as uh, Paul is because of his missionary work, you're going to be brought before kings. Some people don't don't often say Paul was a prophet. Yes. Be, uh, well, don't have time to go in that, but as an apostle, yeah, he was a prophet. Yeah. He, he spoke the word of God and applied it as 
it needed to be applied. In the Old Testament, the prophets normally spoke about the sins of Israel, the sins of the king, and what they needed to do to repent. Uh, that was the majority of it. The minority only involved predicting the future, as we normally say. So mm. that's the prophet. They would speak that good word. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 119.46 says that um, he will speak to kings about God's testimonies and not be ashamed, meaning I'm going to do this, I have it in me, I want to do it, and I'm not going to be intimidated. Mm. The idea of being ashamed is they're not going to intimidate me. I'm going to tell them about you, Lord. What if we had people like this in Congress, only 8% of these kind of people? Now, maybe Congress is only 8% this kind. That's salt and that's light. I believe that would do much better than the 88% we have now yeah maybe uh maybe concentrate uh yes. we need some concentrated christians we need some con yes deluding. exactly yeah. people who are prepared they know they've been prepared and they are ready they have the conviction to bear that testimony which is the word of god to jesus let's take now as we begin to close up to uh paul before felix and the testimony he has there about uh the word of god acts 24 verses 24 through 27 says after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Here we see a man who's too much like modern politicians, as we shall see. The ancient historians, a Jewish one, Josephus, and a Roman one, Tacitus, did not speak well of Felix. They considered him cruel, lustful, uh, mean. Uh, he was not a, not a good fellow, not to be trusted. So as we look at what Paul says to Felix, this is not just personal. This is beyond that. It's what every politician needs to hear. A lot of commentators apply just to Felix, but Felix is a politician, governor, who's responsible for dealing with people in the right way. And so we need to pay close attention to this. He speaks of faith in Christ and the need for faith in Christ, no doubt, but especially as faith in Christ involves three truths that politicians need to hear. Two of them are primary virtues, and one of them deals with a great accountability. Righteousness. Uh, I love the quote from Micah 6.8. God has told you, O man, what to do, how that you should do what's right, and that you should love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Good words for any politician. Mm. Proverbs 16.12. We're told especially that a throne is established by righteousness. George Washington, in his first inaugural address, said the following. The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal order of rule and right, which heaven itself has ordained. That is the first order. That's why Paul says, and Peter says, God ordained law and order so that we could live in quiet and peace and safety. That's the primary job of a government. Then, Paul says, self-control. Uh, in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit that's the last one mentioned. In Second Peter chapter 1, when he speaks of Christian virtues, he also includes self-control. Self-control was big in the pagan world. The pagan poets and people who wrote knew and understood that self-control is so important. So, Proverbs 16, 32, He who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. 
Mm. I've always loved that because you don't have to be a conqueror like Alexander the Great. If you can rule your spirit, you're better than that. Mm-hmm. You're better than that. Mm-hmm. Proverbs 25, 27, do not seek glory. A man <clears throat> who without self-control <clears throat> is like a city broken into and left without walls. Glory is fleeting. And of course, if you don't have self-control, political temptations to money and power abound and you will succumb to that. That's why the the preparation and the calling is so important because you have to, that has to make up your character. That's right. You've got to have a solid character going in. And all the people we looked at from the Old Testament and the prophets are those kind of people. They had their flaws, but they persevered. They endured, as Paul says. This Old Testament scripture gives us examples of how to endure. One is to have this kind of character. And then the judgment to come, 1 Timothy 4.1. Paul says um, Jesus is going to return. And at his appearing and kingdom, which he establishes then, uh, he will judge the living and the dead. Back in the second century A.D., Christianity was on the rise. Persecutions were happening. One of the first church fathers we have whose writings come down to us is a fellow named Justin Martyr. He's called Martyr because he died a (laughs) martyr. He gave his life. He was a very brilliant man, understood Christian doctrine, He wrote a letter to the then emperor around 156 A.D., Emperor Pius. The man had eight names, but Pius is good enough. And in that letter of some 68 chapters, he uh, gives the apology, which is to say a defense of Christianity and why they have nothing to fear. And Christianity is only good. And he comes to chapter 68 at the end, and he says, after he's explained the nature of Christianity, he says, and if these things seem to you to be reasonable and true... Honor them, but if they seem nonsensical, despise them as nonsense, and do not decree death against those who have done no wrong, as you would against your enemies. For we forewarn you that you should not escape, you shall not escape the coming judgment of God if you continue your injustices. Mm. And we ourselves will invite you to do that which is pleasing to God. So he has a good word for him, but he also has that word of judgment. This is what Paul has for Felix. There's judgment to come, and you need to understand that. You're going to be held accountable, not just as a person, but also for how you were a steward of the power that God entrusted you from above. As Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no power unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, you have the lesser sin, but you still have sin because of what you've done. Good for our lawmakers and our representatives to be reminded of that. Absolutely. Um, so when was the last time you heard in the Senate or the House of Representatives anything like that born testimony to? Yeah. And you say, well, you'll have a short career, but you'll be salt and light. And salt and light for a short time of the right kind is far better than saltless. Yeah. And a light that's hidden under a cover. So, but Felix has a problem with money, as you heard Randy read. Greed kills conscience. He was alarmed, but he's looking for a bribe. Right. Greed kills conscience. The quest for money kills conscience. And you say, well, bribes, uh, that's pretty obvious, and that's that's Old Testament stuff. No, bribes in, in modern democracies get put into legal laws, mm-hmm. and people lawfully can siphon off money, and, you know, everybody's fine with it, apparently. Yeah, in some places it's an expectation. It's an expectation. Yeah. Proverbs 17, 23. The wicked accept a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. So 
when Paul speaks to Felix, he says, there is faith in Christ. We want you to have some faith in Christ. But remember, you must do what's right. The righteousness here is not the so-called imputed righteousness of Christ. It's behavior. You must do what's right. And you must control yourself as a person, but especially as a politician, because of all the power entrusted to you, and there's a judgment to come, you will be held accountable. And so if we're going in as a Christian to politics, we need to say, am I prepared? Have I been called? Do I sense a calling? That's very important to bear witness to the Lord in the political realm. And when politics and worldliness collides with our witness, where will we be? Will we stand for God and uh, let the chips fall where they may? Mm. Uh, remember, count the cost, as Jesus said. And again, your term may be four years only, <laughs> uh, or two years if you're in the House, or six if you're in the Senate, whatever the case may be. But your first calling is to bear witness in the political realm, and that's what we need today, and that's what we don't have. Mm. Uh, next week, we're going to look at something a little different, uh, the discourse of language that takes place in our social medias has degenerated terribly. <laughs> we, we think of politicians, but let me tell you, it's degenerated other, other places as well. What does the Bible say about how to discourse to one another in ways in which you can convey the truth without being uh, slandering or mean uh, or things of that sort? We're going to take a look at that. So how to disagree agreeably. How to disagree agreeably. <laughs> well... Thanks, Jim. You've given us a lot to think about, and I'm sure that there are questions or comments that you might have, and we'd love to hear those from you. So please send your questions and comments to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, the word expectations at gmail.com. We will use your question or comment on the broadcast where possible, and we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations, and until next time, keep looking up.